Bell's Breakfast Metal, episode 21. Uh, for this episode, uh, because we're releasing it in December, this is kind of going to be weird compared to everything else that's coming out at the moment. But we decided to do a like retrospective of a really what we thought was a really important year in metal that doesn't get a huge amount of love, or at least I've not heard a huge amount of people talk about. So you always hear these things about, like, say, like 1983 or 1989 being like these huge turning points in metal, and it was really easy to categorise back then because you had the rise of Thrasher, the rise of death metal, the rise of black metal. All those things were really easy to follow because they were in categories. Mm. Bands didn't cross in between so much. Then in the 90s, something really weird happened and metal got really popular, taken over by jocks and (laughs) new metal happened and general consensus is that was pretty awful. Mm. While that was going on, conventional metal sort of died like a lot of bands kept going like you know continually ticking over but not really being half as popular as they ever were like you know your cannibal corpse and stuff was still doing something but no one was buying it then the early 2000s the movement of metalcore started happening now both me and rob aren't the biggest metalcore fans but i think we both agree it's better than new metal. Yeah. yeah. Definitely an improvement. But the yeah, other yeah. big thing with it was bands were suddenly kind of happy to recognise their influences. You'd see mm. people our age wearing Iron Maiden t-shirts again, which you didn't get in, you know, you wouldn't have got with Corn or Slipknot to the same mm. extent. Mm. Like, And this kind of meant there was a resurgence of all these bands, like uh, for mentioned Cannibal Corpse, who were previously underground, suddenly coming back to the fore, and with stuff like Kill releasing some of their best albums of their career. Mm. Like, I mean, obviously up for debate, but like, so we had this kind of thing of suddenly metal had this huge resurgence in the early two thousands, and the year we settled on two thousand five, I think is the perfect point of the culmination of all these bands hitting back to the fore and us getting what we have now of this lovely split of you can find a great album from any genre you like Mm. now. Like, there are bands releasing old-school Swedish death metal albums that are totally up to the quality of uh, the old ones and there's an audience for it Mm. and maybe a huge amount of this is the internet. But yeah, we we thought we'd show some love for 2005, particularly as well because it's the year that was like my turning point in metal. It was the yeah. point where I stopped listening to a lot of mainstream Krang radio and Krang TV crap and started um, discovering good bands. And it was from a lot of the releases we're going to cover, this is totally like my development in metal. I think I think there's an interesting counterpoint as well to a lot of stuff that you might see online, uh, sort of articles about how metal is dead and things like that. Mm. And people don't celebrate a lot of the stuff that has been released since like, you know, the 90s or 80s or something. That's always thought of as the golden age of metal where people were doing new and interesting things and they were perfecting what already existed. But I don't think that's true at all. And there's loads of stuff that's really great in the 2000s. And as we're finding out, there's loads of stuff that's amazing this year as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's becoming too much to listen to because there's so many good things. But to point out that there was loads of great stuff happening and still happening, you know, since the advent of all the different subgenres and when they first became a big thing, there's still been bands who've been doing really interesting and really good examples of the genres that already exist. And then, as Phil was saying, sort of blending them as well and creating something new, which we don't really understand. Yeah, yeah. So at this point in time, I was 15. Rob, 
were you even born at this I stage? Would, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would have been. I would have been ten at this point. So I didn't know what was going on. I've come to all these albums long after their release. Yeah, the reason we've done this with the year I got into metal over Rob is because Rob's far cooler than me and started off like when he got into cool metal, it was like Bathory already. Whereas I, I went up through. <laughs> yeah. Modern releases. I bought like Trivium albums first, and then uh... yeah, it would have been like two or three years after this that I got my first Bathory and Celtic Frost albums, and then got into things in a really strange order, which doesn't make any sense. So it's quite hard to pin that down. But yeah, we'll like towards the end, we'll go through a load of good releases of the year, but we're going to jump straight in with one album that kind of actually typifies the idea of bands who sort of kept things going despite the mm. total wane in popularity. This is the eighth and final album by Bolt Thrower, Those Once Loyal. Um, for those of you who don't know, Bolt Thrower's kind of uh, sort of position in metal. Of, they were one of the, the really early British death metal bands. Mm. They got big in exactly the same scene that like spawned like Carcass and Napalm yeah, Death. Yeah. Picked up by uh, John Peel, the uh, famous radio DJ who gave a lot of airtime to these weird and wonderful, hyper-aggressive, hyper-fast bands. And much like um, Carcass and Napalm Death, they have a super messy, like, really interesting <laughs> point in time first album. And then um, th- then what they did from this kind of point was just refined and honed the formula mm, for mm. eight subsequent albums. Like, There's not a huge amount of musical development between both for our No, albums. it is pretty much the same concept of this... Like the thing interesting that they're not super fast, like a lot of mm. early sort of extreme metal bands, particularly death metal, and talking about Carcass and Napalm Death as well, they very much stuck to a sort of mid tempo with some much faster bits. I mean, this is still death metal, it's still got its fast bits, but it had slow bits as well, and they weren't constantly pushing the boat in terms of speed. They had this very sort of groovy sound to them, almost always, always talking about war. Um, yeah, and yeah. in different incarnations, be it in the future or in the past or modern war or something like that. And they've kept that same idea throughout pretty much all the albums, the same sort of musical direction. And I really think they peak with those once loyal. It's yeah. sort of the truest distillation of that bolt thrower sound. And with some of the best production and some of the best songwriting that they've ever shown. Yeah, so like it has the standard tropes of a Balfour album. Most songs are about four minutes long. They're all this mid-paced death metal. It's all very verse-chorus-y structure. Mm. But much like a band like, say, Vader, it's all about good riffs. It, it, this yeah, is just yeah. layers upon layers of really catchy riffs. Like I was listening to this earlier today, and I can't pinpoint a riff in this album that isn't kind of groovy and interesting yeah like everything is just like yeah this perfect distillation of mid-tempo death metal and like i'd say these guys are one of the masters of it yeah from the interviews you read with um baz thompson one of the guitarists he basically just says well they just write try to write catchy guitar and bass driven songs and then try to give each one of them a little something extra Mm. and i think you can really tell that like the basis of it is all these very very catchy guitar riffs and a lot of really cool lead work as well you get these really sort of kind of sad but still kind of aggressive style leads over the top of everything which is held down by a really solid rhythm section Mm. and then each song has a little something else it does something a little bit different you've got really groovy songs like the kill chain on this which is actually one of the slightly more different ones to bolt yeah yeah and then there's bits where it gets a lot faster and more aggressive 
Uh, and then there's bits where it slows down, and each song has something like that which separates it out. And I think this album's like the best example of that. Oh yeah, definitely. So like lineup wise, um, but for a, pretty much no lineup changes throughout their career, bar having multiple drummers over the course of it. So we have um, Carl Willits on vocals, who he's not on one album, but he's on all the other mm. seven. Who has this great like he's got the perfect death metal voice of it. Guttural as fuck, but you can understand every word. I was as if it's about for all the way here, and you can really understand almost every word he's saying, which is quite something. And it, it doesn't. There's not many people who sound exactly like him. No, is no. One of the things because it doesn't seem as if he's doing anything really different. But there's something very individual about how he delivers stuff, and how he'll vary. You know how distorted the vocals are. There are points where it's harder to understand, and points where it's really clear and almost more, or like sort of heavier Celtic Frost delivery mm. and then there's bits which are more death metal so the way I mean he doesn't vary an enormous amount but what he does with what he's got really helps accentuate the parts which need to be accentuated um, particularly with I think really good lyric writing on this album yeah yeah. it's not sort of well I mean there's bits there's all bits that are almost poetic about it one bit that stood out to me I can't remember what song this is from actually but there was one lyric which was uh, selfless acts of bravery in the face of overwhelming force as from anti-tank yeah, just, <laughs> I really like that lyric. And there's some really good pieces in other Bolfro songs as well about the ideas of war and forgetting war and the impact that it has on people afterwards as well as in the moment, which is really great. Well, yeah, because like, the way this album's structured, you've got nine tracks, which are all more or less war-themed, and all of them are like, you know, battle-themed, like Anti-Tank, the one we just mentioned. And then the final track, When the Cannons Fade, is kind of more of a delving into PTSD. Mm, mm. And it, like that being the fade-out of the album is like a really... It's a nice way of tying off that concept. Yeah. You get the sort of, like... You get the feel of this grandiose rhetoric about war and that it's all honourable and, like, uh, these great battles and things like that which are amazing to watch. But you also get the sense through a lot of the riffs and the leads that are written and through talking about how the album ends of the sort of horror of war as well and that is complemented perfectly by death metal and sort of <laughs> yeah, death yeah. metal vocals. Like, that gets that idea across in a way that... No, like not really any other music genre really can because it has that intensity to it and that drive and that punch which sort of other genres don't have and talking of like that kind of drive and punch that is really due to the the incredible rhythm section on this so mm. longtime bass player Joe Bench I think she's been there since the beginning and also famously one of the first women in death metal the bass tone she has on this album I would put out there is probably the best bass tone I can think of on a straight death metal release mm. it is mm. Perfect, and it mixes so well with the uh, the guitar sound you've got of uh, Baz Thompson and Gavin Ward, who again have this really, really tight. It's kind of it's all quite well produced, but not too clean. It's sort of like it's pretty distorted guitar parts, but it's it all quite sound, clear. It sounds so big when it comes together. But for one of those bands where when the main riff sort of fully kicks in and everything's working together, there's very few bands that sound that heavy and that huge. Mm. Um, and again, yeah, the bass tone is incredible, particularly at the beginning of Anti-Tank. Yes. Uh, yeah. it, it just feels like a tank coming towards you. That's exactly the feeling you get from it, and it's monstrous. Yeah, yeah. And, and like... Pretty much every track on this album is what well, would work as a live track in itself. Like every, I'd happily have watched any of these live when yeah. when Bolfer yeah. were, were still doing it. Sadly, um, yeah. So Bolfer no longer a, a live outfit. So after this album came out, they went back to the studio, tried to record another album, and basically, and I wish more bands would do this. 
So I didn't think it was good enough. They mm. kind of didn't mm. have enough ideas for another one. Just scrapped it and went, we're just going to be a live band. So yeah. until I think it was late 2015, maybe early 2016, they were still regularly touring. Fortunately, I got to catch them at Hellfest once. So I did manage to see them live. But then really tragically, um, their drummer, Martin Kearns, passed away. And yeah, that they decided after that to call it a day. Um, mm. uh, yeah, in doing the research this album and listening back to it, Martin Kearns is a fantastic drummer. And one of the things that Bolt for I have is they have this groove that very few other bands do. And Martin Kearns on this album is phenomenal because he gets that spot on. He's never super fast or super technical, but he's always playing exactly the right thing for the riff at the time. And there'll be these great points where he'll switch between, in the same riff, between sort of double bass drumming and then sort of single bass, more groovy, more space within it. And it will really nicely emphasise differences in the song, change the riff and just give it this energy and this groove that with a different drummer, with a you know more technical standard death metal drummer, this would not have at all and it would lose an awful lot. Uh, even things like at the end of Anti-Tank, we're talking about Anti-Tank a lot, it's a really good song. Yeah, I should mention, the Kill Chain's also really good at first light. Like. Yeah, entrenched. <laughs> well, pretty much everything. But there's this really nice bit at the end of Anti-Tank, sort of as the song is winding down, where there's this very, I mean, it's not it's not hugely technical, there's this sort of slight triplet bass drum feel on the outro. And the, when I was listening to it, it just this really reminds me of Machine Gun Fire which fits mm. the imagery of Bolt Thrower so well. Add that to the thing I was talking about earlier with Joe Bench's bass sounding like a tank, and you can sort of feel the themes within the music itself. The music is sounding like its own theme, which is really cool. And, and the thing that should be mentioned, so both me and Rob are putting it out there, we think this is the best Bolt Thrower album. This is an opinion I've never heard echoed. Yeah. Like, a lot of people will make the case for Realm of Chaos, the second album, being the best. Fourth Crusade's another really mm. popular one. And Fourth Crusade, I would argue, is fucking brilliant. Fourth Crusade's great, yeah. Some even go for In Battle Is There No Law, the first one. But like the reason I'd say, like, say In Battle Is There No Law and Warmaster don't match up to this is the lack of Martin Kearns. Previous mm. Bolt Thrower drummers have not been as tight. And for a band so groove-driven... Like, if you listen to um, World Eater, the really famous track off of um, Realm of Chaos... There's a drum fill in that that doesn't come in quite on time. Like, he does this big tom roll and comes in a little bit off the beat and then corrects and it's fine. And I guess he's got this brilliant, like, you know, youthful enthusiasm. Mm. But I like the precision of this. I, like, the, the machine they become at this point is so good for just... Mm churning out crushing death metal and it, it, it doesn't feel stale either you know it still feels like there's a huge amount of enthusiasm the fills in particular on this just to have this sort of sudden burst of activity and then it goes back to sort of holding everything together like it's not as if it just sounds soulless there's still an awful lot of groove and soul within his playing and it really helps the album I think <laughs> Yeah, and like another like nice tie-in piece. So the kill chain has the same riff in it oh, yeah. as they have this riff that's on three tracks. Um, Powder burns. I can't remember Is it the first sen- one. Cenotaph. 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 Yeah. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Powder burns and cenotaph all have this riff that's dun 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, and, and like. Some people have said this is because of laziness, but like Bolfro have always claimed this is their idea of like tying these three mm. songs together. Mm. These are meant to be like a continuous piece. And yeah, like it really works. It's yeah. a really great way to tie it to the other albums. And it's it's only an intro riff. It's just this cool like build up. It's, it's quite a fun riff. I think, uh, and uh, as Thompson said uh, this as well, 
this is probably the song Kill Chain, which it's on, is probably the song it works best on as an intro compared to the other two. I no, I really like it on Powder Burns. I like it building to that really um really catchy lead riff. Powder Burns song. Is one of their best riffs as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah I like as just one of my favourite riffs yeah. ever. <laughs> like, um Carl Willits as well, he's got an amazing sense of rhythm, just in general, but the, this mm. album as well. There's a really nice delivery of vocal lines and putting emphasis in different places. And it sort of reminds me in a slightly different way of reading things about Meshuggah and how James Kidman sort of rewrites his vocal lines to fit exactly the rhythm that they're going for and obviously Bolt Thrower are much more down to earth in terms of their songwriting than Meshuggah they're not oh, yeah, going course, all over the place and trying to disguise the time signatures and things like that but there's still a really nice sense of exactly where you put your vocal lines and how you do that in order to make the song better and I think that really helps there's a lot of attention to detail in something which on the face of it seems almost simple yeah, yeah, uh, totally. And and he gets these great moments um, at first light as a really good example of this, where when we get into like the middle eight section of the song, a lot of the instruments will kind of go down in the, mm. in the mix on like maybe the guitars will drop out and he'll just do a really like heavy low line of vocals yeah, yeah. to lead you into the solo passage. Mm. And it's just the perfect build for Gaz or ba- uh, Gavin or Baz to come in and just... But not really shred, like just play these quite cool kind of mm, mm. maybe melodic or maybe a little whammy bar led kind of solos. Yeah, you sometimes have the sort of you do sometimes have the sort of really fast, quick and short solos. They they never outstay their welcome and they're always just a way of breaking things up. And then mm. there are because Boltfor are amazing at writing really melodic leads. There's some fantastic leads all throughout and no one's ever got that style. Some of that carries through to the solos as well, and you have these really nice short interludes which just add to the whole texture of the album. Yeah, yeah. Um I think that's pretty much all on the on Bolfra, unless yeah. you've got anything else. Um, it's a sen- yeah. It's essentially just Bolt Thrower distilling their formula to its purest form with the best sound they've ever had. Mm. And, and if you you want to check out more from Carl Willits, who started the band Memoriam, which are kind of in a very similar vein and got some members overlap, so mm. that's probably where to go if you've you know had enough of the eight Bolt Thrower albums. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so from this, we're going to play Anti Tank Dead Armor. Yeah. 
Seems to get a lot more hate than they deserve. This is um, Nevermore's This Godless Endeavour from Century Media. And this, I got into Nevermore quite late, and this is the first album that I really listened to in full. I was really sort of blown away by it. It's a really interesting fusion of different things, and Mm. I can't really pin down exactly what genre it is. It's got elements that seem to come from sort of power metal almost yeah, in some yeah. of the vocals it's got riffs that seem to come from thrash metal or even like some bits which seem to be more death metal and then it's got bits which come from almost like Pantera style groove metal and they mesh this into this really sort of interesting final product with amazing sort of virtuoso musician playing particularly Jeff Loomis's guitar playing um, yeah, yeah. really sort of you know huge range of vocal styles from Warrell Dane who is quite divisive in terms of vocals to a lot of people and then an awful lot of just very heavy musicianship combined with quite peaceful parts as well Uh, it has this really interesting package which doesn't really sound like anyone else and from what I've heard this Godless Endeavour is probably the most together and comprehensive 
and best written Nevermore album. Yeah, so the reason we've gone for this one is it's just like a real highlight from 2005, and this was totally like, this is an album I got into pretty much when it came out, and was a real interesting point in sort of my musical development of like, I got into say like Trivium and a few other bands and heard this and was like, oh god, this is where you can go with guitar Mm, playing. mm. Because I mean... I was young enough, I was listening to this, this is before I'd heard Dream Theater. And oh, it was yeah, like, yeah. this was kind of the most technical guitaring I'd heard in metal at this time. Um, so for a bit of um, backstory on Nevermore, they were formed by members of the like, kind of progressive thrash band Sanctuary, yeah, which was yeah. uh, Warrell Dane on vocals and uh, Jim Shepard playing bass. And just before they kind of broke up, they picked up this genius young guitarist Jeff Loomis mm. who um, had previously auditioned for Megadeth but got turned down because yeah. he was too young <laughs> um, yeah and so Sanctuary fell apart and in 1992 those three formed uh, Nevermore with uh, drummer Van Williams and those four have been the core of Nevermore through their entire existence um, this is their sixth of seventh album of seven albums and I'd say by a mile the most consistent. It's the only one I can listen to start to finish without mm. wanting to skip. Like, they, there's some... Their back catalogue's a frustratingly awkward thing of, like, moments of genius mixed with songs I just cannot get my head around. Mm. Like, I just mm. don't... Can't find an in with. But this seems to be the perfect combination of every element they had. And, yeah, it's great that this came up and got picked up... Um, I mean, they're on Century Media, which are a massive label in terms of metal, mm. and probably got the most attention I've ever seen the band getting, really. Yeah, um, and the sort of songwriting is really interesting. You have these gigantic, really catchy, epic sort of choruses, even in sort of ballad songs like Sentient Number no. 6, but almost all the songs have these huge, catchy sort of vocal leads with giant guitar behind them, sort of still very heavy, but much catchier in a way which could almost be power metal but it's too heavy and too aggressive. Mm. And then there are moments which feel much more like extreme metal. The beginning of Born, the first track's sort of like this. It cuts in at quite an extreme moment where you don't have these huge, soaring vocal melodies. You have things that aren't quite growls but are closer to it. Yeah, yeah. And then you'll have these sort of slower, more sinister moments where you have sort of weird guitar stuff going on and almost sort of machine, raspy-type vocals from Warrell Dane. And so it, it... it has this really nice sort of dynamic variation in it, which creates some really interesting songs. But it always comes back to this core of there's this incredibly catchy chorus, at least yeah. for me, which really drives these songs. And they're they're different enough and they're interesting enough that that approach is never boring. It's always really catchy. So um, with with Born, the the thing that really separates this from being like a kind of more power metally song, despite that chorus, is Effectively, the whole thing is a total shred fest. Like, mm, mm. all the rhythm parts, all the lead parts. So, under the catchy chorus is this, like, stupid kind of, like, however many notes a second, yeah. like, shreddy <laughs> lead part. Um, yeah, and the whole thing is, like, Nevermore seemed very geared to giving Jeff a vehicle to just write these insanely technical mm. pieces of rhythm guitar a lot of the time. Yeah. Sort of heavy melody parts as well. Like... For a guy who can solo like Jeff can, they're relatively restrained on the solos. Yeah, like, yeah, it never really outstays its welcome. And a lot of the solos are really nicely written and they add stuff to the album rather than it feeling like the album's there so that Jeff can play a lot of really technical solos. But I think the rhythm playing as well is a really good point. Things like um, Psalm of Lydia, it's got 
crazy rhythm guitar parts, which for another band could almost be a solo. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah these are so difficult, and it's so amazing um, watching them get played as well. Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a um, really nice one. Year of the Voyager. Year of the Voyager. <laughs> Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a Narnia novel. It's a Narnia novel. <laughs> that seems like something Neville will make an album about. Yeah, um, yeah, quite I've possibly. I've written that down, so... <laughs> <laughs> that one anyway well, I mean, it, it, in this example it's Chris Broderick and Jeff Loomis playing it ah it's not um, so Chris Broderick was the touring guitarist for the yeah, rest yeah. of so, so, oh, so he, sorry, he, yeah, he yeah. was on that but he's not on the album yeah um, but watching them play it together is mind blowing so precise and so technical these rhythm parts and yet they managed to get them together perfectly yeah yeah like um, I, I think and maybe it's just because he's the guy I've seen them with Chris mm. Broderick is probably their best second guitarist they've had yeah because Nevermore had quite a revolving door of, like, they I think they had, like, four other, like, secondary guitarists, which can only be down to Jeff being too hard to keep up with. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a tough call. So, actually, recording on this album, we have uh, Steve Smith, who's also of the band One Machine. Like, that's why he kind of went on to focus on afterwards. Who mm. we've seen live, and I don't know, don't remember rating all that highly. I have no memory of this. It was in the fleece. Okay. Uh, I think I pointed out to you though, like from Nevermore, you're like, ah, oh, I was expecting more, like, more, more shredding. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, sorry, Steve. <laughs> um, the, the other thing, kind of like, which separates this from kind of, like, sort of more groove metal and power metal stuff is, like, the tuning of this album. I think they're tuned to, like, A, which mm, for mm. people who play guitar is an immensely heavy tuning. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the guitarists on this are really, really heavy. It- and it separates it out from bits where you could think it's power metal. You think, oh, that vocal line feels like a sort of epic power metal moment. And you listen to the guitar and you think, that is so far out of the realm of what you'd hear in a power metal song. Even thrash as well. Mm. You don't hear thrash that's this heavy and down-tuned. Well, I'd say the other thing that sort of separates it from thrash is they don't tend to go in for like the open palm mute chugging riffs. Yeah, that's which, pretty rare. Which yeah. is, you know, the, the thrash staple, I think. Mm. Um, the other really interesting part of this is you get a lot of changes of pace. So you have like Born and Final Product, the first two tracks, which are pretty much crazy shred fest face melters. Mm. And then you get to My Acid Words, which has got a lot of much slower, more hefty atmospheric riffs. Mm. Um, and then, then like the kind of ballad epic in the middle, Sentient Six, uh, the second of War, I think this is quite a good point to focus on Moral Dane's kind of bizarre lyrical themes mm. this is the second song he's written about robots becoming sentient yeah and this is yeah. like a kind of emotional ballad about a a robot kind of wanting to think like a human yeah yeah and then destroys humanity of course yeah <laughs> has to um yeah there's, there's some other really cool uh lyrical stuff on this uh final pro it's an interesting one which is about sort of the media's obsession with suicide which is a really good read just reading those lyrics it's making a really interesting point and yeah, the whole yeah. album uh, was sort of described as conceptual pieces about real life issues like loss of identity and religion, meaning of life. Uh, you've got the media and suicide, random sci-fi stories about robots. But they all feel very genuine on this. Um, and giving the lyrics a read, I, I really like reading them. And it feel, mm. really adds something to the song. They all feel very well planned out and written as well as being very well written songs. Which really helps us because um, Warlane's vocals are always, you know, Sanctuary or any of this stuff. His lyrics are really clear and upfront. Mm. And there's so many songs. Like, I think it's a big problem with Early Nevermore and actually the album, the final album they did following this, where when his lyric writing is a bit awkward or doesn't quite fit, 
it can just wreck a whole song. Like, if you want a good example of this, go back and watch the video for uh, Future Tense from Sanctuary, which is a whole song about how, like, the 80s are a bit weird. What's the 90s going to be like? (laughs) Which, it has this amazing, like... It dated hard. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Also, his, his fringe in it is hilarious. <laughs> but actually a very good song. And there's some quite clever stuff yeah, in the video. Yeah. But yeah. like. <laughs> and the thing is, as Rob was saying this album, his lyrics are really great. They're, there's not too many awkward phrasings or anything. Because mm. he's got this really clear voice. Like I remember reading an interview uh, him saying like his opera trainer would be furious of how he sings now. Which shows he's got this backing in knowing how to sing really properly cool, yeah. but is doing all like all those crazy <laughs> effects you were talking about yeah oh and there's sort of things where they've got layered up vocals on this as well and they generally do it really well like it really adds to a lot of the atmosphere and parts and you have these weird machine rasps where there's effects on it as well yeah um, yeah yeah which can give a lot of the songs they have these really mechanical moments where they put this effect on the vocals as well and it's just done really tastefully it never feels like it's going over the top or being annoying it always feels like it's adding to the sort of emotional weight of the song rather than just for the sake of it yeah yeah the other thing that's really um decent about this album is it's an Andy Sneap uh like job overall producer engineering mixing mastering I think Jeff Lewis might have had a bit of a hand in uh some of the mixing but um his stuff can be a bit too clean and clear this album's got just enough muddiness. Mm, it still feels mm. heavy and over the top and like in your face. Whereas the follow-up album, the was it the Obsidian Conspiracy or something like yeah, that, that's right. was um, it was too clean, too bright, and it lost some of the heaviness. You didn't like this has an like despite the clean vocals, despite it not really being a death metal album, in place has that death metal oppressive mm, mm. nature to it, just by virtue of you know the wall of sound coming at you. It needs that distorted edge, I find. Yeah, the combination of the production and the really low tuning means this album's way heavier than you think it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. And um useful thing I got out of this album, there's a guest solo from James Murphy uh, on the instrumental Holocaust of Fort. Um, so I discovered who James Murphy was and got to go find like his like all the shit he's done over his mm. career, which is definitely a fun thing to pick up if you're into decently guitaring. Like, especially... Um, I forget the name of his solo band. I was going to say Lee Profundus, but that's not it. Whatever. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the album Dreams of a Carrying Kind. I can't remember the name of the band. But mm, the, yeah. yeah, discovered it through this. And there's like there's loads of great little things you can go off and find through Nevermore. Because especially now, they've all sort of split and gone their mm. separate directions. Like Jeff's gone, um, did a load of solo albums. Um, and then now playing guitar for Arch Enemy. Of yeah. All, all yeah, things. Which, interesting transition. Yeah, yeah. So, like, they've had this quite interesting, very career. But, yeah, the thing we need to get to, because I completely forgot to mention it up to now, yeah. is the rhythm section on this. Is, oh, yes, is... yeah, yeah, I was just thinking of that. Uh, Van Williams is a fantastic drummer. <laughs> um, managed to hold down, you know, these crazy, complicated um, rhythm parts, or rhythm guitar sections, which are driving the whole thing forwards. Huge changes in tempo and feel and style, which are all over the place. Um, and like as a bass guitar player as well, I forget who plays. Who plays Jim Shepard's the bass player. Yeah, he's very like you. He doesn't show up so much. Like in in a lot of Nevermore songs, he's very much in the mm. background. But if you ever look up tabs for how to play Nevermore tracks or just watch like live videos of him, he plays some pretty complex stuff and really keeps up. He doesn't 
doesn't fall into the root note thing. And mm. the other thing he does very well, actually, on a lot of the more melodic moments, like Sentient Six is a very melodic build-up that's mostly, like, piano to start with. Yeah. He comes in with these almost, like, like almost, like, lead bass parts where yeah. you do, like, yeah. a little melody. Um, he also does this quite a lot in the song Heart Collector off of Dead Heart in a Dead World, probably the next best Nevermore mm. album. But, yeah, so he really adds something. And you, know, you just get Van Williams, the drummer, is just a machine he's great yeah he, he writes really cool stuff without being overly flashy mm. he mm. really as Rob said he really is the anchor to all of this oh yeah when you see when you watch videos of them live as well the degree to which they have managed to be tight on some of these really fast really mm. complex songs speaks the whole world of good about their rhythm section because if your rhythm section cannot keep up with this craziness it's going to fall apart and it's going to sound all over the place but it doesn't it always sounds on point which is a nice thing about this band as well. They did always seem to be writing for live because mm. live was when they really excelled. Yeah. And I get the impression with Van Williams, he just sounds like a drummer who bashes the hell out of his kids. Yeah, he really does. <laughs> it's like the snare sound on this. It's a great snare sound, mm. but it sounds like he's hitting it so hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really feel that. Which really like works for like a track like Born, which wants to just mm. steamroller you. Like, yeah, it, it adds to the you know the heavy moments we were talking about earlier when you've got a drummer who really feels like he's smashing his kit to pieces. <laughs> it, it really helps it feel heavy. Yeah, uh, another really interesting thing on this album, the track A Future Uncertain, uh, towards the end of it, is lifted lyrically from one of their first demos, a track called oh, World yeah. Unborn, which is a really different song, and they've kind of completely rearranged it. They're great to listen to back-to-back. World Unborn mm. has a, a lovely intro solo from Jeff, and it's yeah, it's really fun just to hear the progression of the band, like yeah. how, how they've changed their ideas about writing over... Well, like the 15 or so years yeah, I'll be really first seen at this point. Yeah. Um, the other massive moment of this, this album ends with by far and away my favourite Nevermore song ever, This Godless Endeavour, which is like a nine minute build up mm, mm. of just gradually increasing like technicality and <laughs> madness uh, with a lyrical concept all about the kind of intersection of science and religion mm, mm. which just works perfectly it starts in like mellow almost classic rock yeah, uh, territory yeah. moving into like say more of like like thrash or heavy metal riffing and then just slowly getting more and more technical <laughs> until about three minutes before the end jeff comes in doing this crazy sweep lead mm, mm. which Sounds like it's going to be a solo, then just keeps repeating and more all layers, <laughs> loads of vocals over it. It just becomes a riff, yeah. <laughs> and then it starts harmonising, <laughs> and then it gets more intricate. And you watch it live, they just do all yeah, this, and it yeah, just yeah. works. Uh, like, it's an amazing job of showing all the different sort of genres and styles that Nevermore can do, somehow meshing them together into something which really organically builds and feels worth it, and they're like it works for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Like... Uh, it is just the perfect track. Like, it's mm. too long for us to play on this, but it's definitely the one to sort of go away and yeah. check out. Yeah. The thing I also want to bring up, because I think this really ties into the 2005 concept, so another thing that came back massively in the early 2000s, and it's kind of gone out of vogue a bit, and I think it's probably a good thing, is shredding was so popular. Yeah. Because yeah. new Metal kind of did away with solos. Like, that period of new Metal and Rock, solos sort of 
disappeared from music. I can music. barely imagine a new metal guitar solo. It would probably be terrible. It, it probably wouldn't be great. Well, no, it might actually be amazing because a lot of those guys could really play and then just didn't. Yeah, like, yeah. So, but yeah, like, this was so popular at the time. Like, other bands were hugely popular this year. You had, like, Avenged Sevenfold, mm, where mm. that was all about well-written solos. Arch Enemy, all these bands were getting really big. And, it, yeah, people were just all about the guitar solos yeah, at this point. Yeah. And this album is a great example of them. And as much as it will annoy Devon Townsend fans, or at least some of them, I want to defend the sweeping in this this album. <laughs> like, so, like, yeah, Rob could probably explain, but Devon Townsend's gone on record saying he hates it and thinks it's a completely useless technique. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's gone on record about a lot of things over the years, saying that he thinks that... I mean, I was saying that guitar solos were completely pointless at some point, and then on the most recent album came out and did some really nice guitar solos, so... I, don't take him too seriously. Yeah, he, he yeah. probably doesn't mean half of the stuff that he says. Um, <laughs> but, but it's it's more. I've heard a lot of fans of his sort of make the same argument, and I've always felt that's just removing something from the toolbox. Why on yeah, earth? Yeah, limit yourself on a technique. It's about it's about how it's used, not whether it's used at all. And yeah, this album is a wonderful example, uh, particularly the end of this Godless Endeavor. It's an amazing example of how sweet picking can ramp up the intensity of a song, not just sort of like being wanky guitar, but really adding to the song well actually the the bit I was really thinking of where it kicks in perfectly mm. is in My Acid Words the third track mm. which is a bit of a slower very heavy it's all like a lot of open chords and like massive sounding riffs but there's a bit where um, like the middle eight section the rhythm section goes really quick but Jeff does this slow like sort of two or three note lead that mm. gets quicker and quicker into this suddenly explosion of <laughs> yeah, notes at the yeah. end but the explosion of notes is like three or four seconds long. Yeah, but it is the yeah. perfect culmination of this building passage. Mm. And I, I, I feel that totally works. And this album is probably the best I've heard of something Jeff's done for marrying his like almost impossible knowledge of guitar with riffs and memorable stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. without disappearing up his own arse. Which... Yeah, d- d- provided, taking that immense technique and that sort of like dynamic sensibilities that he has because he's a master of guitar and providing it to really good songwriting and making it serve the song and craft like a product which overall speaks to a way better musician than just playing a thousand notes a second does. So the thing I want to bring up about Jeff actually because it's an interesting point to cover. The main criticism I've heard of him is he doesn't have his own sound. You know like you hear great lead guitarists is like you you recognize yeah you like you recognize a michael amott solo even if he's you know playing on a different yeah, band's it, well, album. well we were talking about megadeth like rust in peace well if you listen to that you can name the soloist on each solo that's yeah sort of thing. yeah um so jeff doesn't have that and a lot of people kind of lean that towards him not being as brilliant as he is but i i think jeff's actually got a really interesting thing and this is kind of um shown by if you listen to Arch Enemy's new album Will to Power the guy's a chameleon much mm. like um, Frederick the new guitarist of Opeth yeah. who like these two have a kind of very overlapping career um, <laughs> they have this ability where whatever they're in they can just suit so here mm. he's writing for Nevermore and Nevermore is meant to be this mechanical beast it's not you don't want these kind of very bluesy kind of solos it works him having these precise like mechanical sounding like very very technical solos mm, but he listened mm. to an arch enemy and he sounds like a bluesy guy yeah, he's got yeah. he's perfectly fit with michael amott's kind of more kind of 70s and early 80s driven guitar playing 
I, I, I truly think the guy's a genius player and to some extent underrated. Mm. Although I do remember the first time I saw him live, we were, like it was at a festival and they'd finished, everyone sort of wandered back to the campsite, massive group of people, in complete silence until someone shouted, yeah, so who else has given up guitar? <laughs> and there was just a, a general murmur of agreement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very good musicians have that thing where they can sometimes put you off because it feels completely unattainable. But Yeah, yeah. And talking of unattainable, I think that's the perfect... Um, intro to oh that is the perfect intro yeah yeah (laughs) so the song we're going to play from this is like the the melodic ballad moment sentient six although it does build to an absolutely Mm. kind of brutal heavy ending and yeah it's definitely a sort of one of the career highlight tracks from from just yeah all their albums this is the song that got me into Nevermind yeah (laughs) I am sentient number six I stand in line I am the prototype I convenience for mankind Superior is digital human flesh So trivial I hate that I can't see 
album we're going to cover is um, from a band who at the time weren't huge, but now are like one of the biggest rising forces in metal, mm. undeniably. Uh, much like Nevermore, a pretty divisive band. Like They've definitely got more fans than haters, but my God, have they got some haters as yeah. well. Now, slightly outside the remit, because I think I actually bought this in 2006 and not 2005, <laughs> but it was still, you know, slightly underground at the time. This is Gojira's third album from Master Sirius on listenable records. And this is the one where they really break out. Not many people really knew about Gojira before this point. And then with their most recent album, Magma, it was top of a whole bunch of lists. It was everywhere. They're huge. They headline festival. They headline Bloodstock this year, I think. Yeah, um, um, yeah. I think this coming year they've, they've got at least a very high up slot. Mm. But yeah, they, they've had this really interesting rise. So from before from Master Series, I'd never heard of them. Mm. I mean, I, I was kind of new to metal, so maybe that's why I'd missed them. But not long after this came out, I started hearing a lot of mention of them. Then, like, 2008-ish, I think, um, The Art of Dying came out. Another massive jump in popularity. Mm. Then, Eve, like, uh, L'Enfant Sauvage came out, and suddenly everyone knew who yeah. they were. Yeah. And then Magma, I almost would say they're kind of on the same level of just, mm. like, from mm. L'Enfant Sauvage, they've just got so big. That yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're one of those names that you just know if you're into metal now, and they're one of those bands that a lot of people who, you know, are getting into metal for the first time, Gojira are one of those bands that you find one of the earlier, quite really quite heavy bands, particularly albums like this, which are really super heavy, and I'd forgotten quite how heavy this was. Yeah, yeah. So um, they formed in 1996 as Godzilla, but then changed the name for relatively obvious reasons. They're from Bayonne, France, where... There was no discernible scene for them. And I think this might be why they suddenly took off in the 2000s, mm. is the internet suddenly became a thing and you yeah. didn't need a scene. If you were doing something cool and interesting... People would find out. Yeah, hopefully. And like, this is definitely a success story. Uh, another really interesting thing about the band, never had a lineup change. So four members have been completely uh, consistent. Uh, Joe Duplantier on vocals and guitar... His uh, brother Mario on drums, and then Christian Andrew on guitar, and John Michael Lad Ladabi or something like that on bass. And this has just been the core of this band all the way through. It's really cool. They're still happy to work with each other. Yeah, that yeah, it's time. Very, very impressive to maintain a lineup over that sort of length of time, especially yeah. containing brothers. <laughs> so yeah, we should probably get into. If by some impossible chance you've never heard Gojira... Or possibly not heard this album. Yeah. How would you explain the sound on this album? It's it's a weird one. I'd probably go like... So when you first get into the album, the first song is Ocean Planet. And it has this sort of... These weird fluent transitions between sort of atmospheric-y metal, like progressive metal atmospheric passages. They use a lot of sort of guitar tapping in some of the more atmospheric moments as well, through to these really super heavy, almost groovy-ish, but with sort of tinges of prog mm. moments. And you'll see that come back on songs like Backbone, which is really heavy and really sort of right in your face. And then they'll have moments like the build-up to... Uh, flying Whales and Unicorn, which are really almost post-rocky in ways. They're yeah. very stripped back. They have these simplistic sort of melodies on the guitar uh, matched up by very precise drum work and bass playing. And then the vocals are sort of half screams, in a the, way. So the newer newer stuff really is that kind of... 
I think the band that sort of typified whatever this technique is, is Machine Head. That, mm. that kind of not quite screaming, but it's almost all a scream. And yeah. that's kind of what they do now. This, there's moments of like proper, almost death metal vocals. Yeah. Like yeah. Backbone particularly has some really kind of guttural moments from Joe. Um, I certainly noticed a bit of uh, sort of Strapping Young Lad influence on some of the vocals as well. You've got this sort of like sad, heavy and aggressive all at the same time, but it's not your full-on sort of death metal vocals. It's something slightly different. Yeah, that's an interesting counterpoint because what I had here, and I, I think I saw this somewhere online, of the mm. Gojira sound is, if you want to compare, like take bits of two bands, it's like Meshuggah meets Neurosis. So you've yeah, got some kind yeah. of like interesting, hefty post-rocky bits with the rhythmic perfection of Meshuggah. It's, yeah, it's not yeah. as perfect as or as mind-bending as Meshuggah, but it's certainly got that feeling. Yeah, there. yeah, there's certainly interesting stuff going on, particularly yeah, drummer Mario is amazingly precise and mm. plays some really fantastic grooves on a, well, pretty much all of Dejira's work. But yeah, this album's, I think, some of the pinnacle of that. You've got some really interesting... You know, you've got these chugging riffs which have slightly unconventional structures and nothing like Meshuggah, but still enough to keep you really interested when you'll have these riffs that will go around and repeat for a very long time on some of the songs. There's enough interesting stuff going on there that it's worth listening to it that many times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think the drummer Mario really has to be credited with a lot of uh, Gojira's success because he is just such a perfect underpinning to everything and so interesting. Now, I don't know how much the the writing does seem to be a four-way collaboration, as far as I can tell. Um, But um, just what he seems to be coming up with and adding to this is such an obvious point to draw people in. Mm, mm. And they sort of have this thing because because they do that Meshuggah style where it's it's very clean almost, but still super hefty. It's not too off-putting to listeners. It's quite interesting in that way. It's... It, it doesn't have the cannibal corpse thing of it being an impenetrable wall of sound. Yeah, it's such yeah. a clear groove, and the vocals kind of really mix in well with the groove rather than being another attack over the top. Yeah, it's still really heavy, but it doesn't have quite that full assault on your ears that a lot of death metal, sort of the point of a lot of death metal, mm. um, it, yeah, it sits a little below that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and, and particularly with the newer stuff where you've got a lot more sort of f- fully clean vocals coming in, it's really quite accessible. Um, this album's a little less like that. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, this is there's little bits of it. Say you get on um, a riff towards the end of Heaviest Matter in the Universe mm. and a couple of other places, a little bits of clean vocals, but it's not really until Leon von Savage that Joe really develops his clean singing technique. Yeah. He's yeah. like, it's still work in progress at this point. But his screams are excellent. Mm, mm. Uh, and again, this seems to be the theme for this. Really clear. Like, you can really get the lyrics. Which brings yeah, us on yeah. to the interesting thing I found with Gojira. I think for this point in time, we're looking at 2005, this was so out there and weird. Yeah, People couldn't yeah. classify this album. So the cover from Tomorrow's Series is a, a beautiful like hand-drawn thing of a, a whale flying past like a moon. Yeah. Um, apparently the band had a big part in uh, designing the cover artwork as well. So it's very similar to um, the Sea Shepherds logo, um, which is a charity that the band oh, all yeah. support, because Gojira are really into their environmentalism, and there's lots of songs, this album's all about that. Well, yeah, that, that was the other point I was going to get to. Like, yeah, the lyrics are all environmentalism. Yeah. Like, it's, for music, this heavy, it's not the usual aggression and despair. It's a lot more hopeful, and the kind of anger is directed 
in quite a good place, really. Mm. And mm. just like getting into this in 2006, I found the really interesting thing was no one knew how to classify this band. Yeah. No one knew where to put them. Like the the thing I constantly hear and still do to this day is, oh, they're like Mastodon. Which I can't understand. I see people saying they like the French Mastodon a lot, and I don't get it. I don't see them having really any other than the fact that maybe they both have taken elements from Neurosis. I don't see anything about their particular styles which really remind me of each other. Well, the thing that I think is quite interesting, the the difference I'd say is completely at odds. Is we were saying both Mastodon and Gojira are bands led by their drummer, Mm. but Mastodon's drummer is these beautiful kind of impossible contained jazz fills yeah like yeah. if you listen to a song like the wolf is loose like that doesn't have a discernible obvious <laughs> beat that's just a drum solo with yeah riffs. yeah you've got an almost like sort of keith moon style thing going on where there's these untold hundreds of snare rolls going on all the time whereas mario is completely different he is this incredibly precise machine which is holding everything together with really precise grooves yeah which yeah. fit everything perfectly and gajira's riffs sort of follow that pattern in the same way Mastodon sort of follow brand's drumming style yeah yeah so, yeah i I don't really get the comparison, other than they're both weird but kind of popular. Yeah, I think it's some kind of some equivalencies in vocals. Yeah, yeah, and maybe the odd riff that's slightly similar. But yeah, I, as I say, it's it's more Meshuggah. I always felt mm. had a kind of similarity, if like obviously massive differences. Um, so it, pretty interesting to discuss with this, like its kind of position in their catalogue. So I'd say much like me and Rob were saying with Bolt Thrower. This is by far and away both our favourite album of Gojira's. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And not really a shared opinion as far as I can tell. Like A lot of people really like the latest three. I never hear anyone mention the first two. I don't no, know if they no. even have songs in a live set. So I re- I, like before researching this podcast, I re-listened to the link. And I think the link is great. Mm. But the thing, the big difference is it's still clear they're slightly trying to find their sound yeah, so for whatever yeah. reason the production on this the mix of it i don't even think it's the riffs are that much better it's just the way this album has this perfect attack mix with this like real cleanness but not sterile mm, and i don't know mm. what how they quite get that whereas the link's all a bit distorted it's a bit fuzzy it never has the power this has like from the opening of ocean planet this yeah. Is a punch in the face of a mm. like musical sound, like. and there's a fair amount of dynamics on this as well. Songs like Unicorn in the beginning of Flying Whales have get really quiet and mm. sort of muted, and there's not much going on, and it has this slow build up. And then you have things where all hell breaks loose, and then you have slower, heavier stuff, and you have faster, heavier stuff. So there's a fair amount of just variation in all the elements which put these songs together, and they've managed to balance that perfectly. Where no one element feels like it's out of place; it always feels as if it's building towards something else. Yeah. That like so, flying whales is a great example of it. Mm. That change it comes in. You have like a three minute build up of very very gentle clean guitar with this kind of um, bass and drum kind of groove underneath underpinning and it. And... Sounds of whales in the background, <laughs> yeah. of course. But then that sort of fades, and then suddenly this heavy as hell riff comes in, and that just felt right. Yeah, yeah. It felt like the earlier guitar passages were building to the introduction of this riff. Which is an interesting thing with this album, and I think why I hold it up, say, above something like The Art of Dying, which is brilliant tracks. Mm. This album's the only one that's not overblown and overstuffed. Yeah. It's, it's almost 70 minutes long, but I don't think there's any there's any filler in it. Whereas, like, The Art of Dying, I every time I put it on, I always feel it starts to drag towards the end. Like, yeah, yeah. 
I Lone from Sauvage, I just I don't get it. I it just completely lost yeah, me. It's got a few moments that are really good, but by and large I didn't get on with the album particularly well. And Mike Mur both me and Rob really liked, but in researching this we both separately came back and went <laughs> Oh, I forgot how good from our yeah, series yeah. is. It's way better. <laughs> and going back to the sort of the uh, environmental themes that Gojira have in their music, probably the best example of this for me is the track "Global Warming," yes. which starts. It's got these amazing sort of melodic guitar tapping passages, which give you this really eerie atmosphere. It's got some of the cleanest vocals on it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it really paints this picture of the idea of sort of global warming destroying the earth in a really kind of scary and melancholic way and then has heavy sections as well uh, and brings that sort of tapping rip into something heavy along the same sort of continuity i think the the tapping rip is actually so global warming is not there's a lot of live staples off this album global warming is not really one of them yeah i wonder because i've never been able to quite work out what's going on in that main mm. riff um possibly there's more than two guitars yeah because what yeah. it is it's like this wall of like melody of multiple overlaying tapping patterns, which if you're not a guitarist, is patterns where you kind of um, pull off a note as you sort of press down. So effectively you can play like three to four notes in the same time you'd normally mm. take to play one. So you get this wall of notes. And because it's all played with your hands rather than a pick, it's all like a slightly cleaner sound, not yeah. quite so harsh. Yeah. So what they've done here, they've overlaid a lot of different ones of those. To make this kind of impenetrable wall of nice sounding notes. Yeah. And that's all underpinned by quite simplistic um, bass and drums. But the bass just has this nice rhythm to it, which Joe later sings the same rhythm mm-hmm. as the bass. But to kind of get that idea of chaos, what starts happening is the tapping riffs start like unpicking themselves yeah. each, each yeah. time through. Where like the notes go weirder and weirder and more off scale and out of kilter but only like maybe just one yeah, guitar doing yeah. it. it it's this really clever build it's, yeah it gives it this weird sort of sinister feel to the whole thing it's one of my favorite songs of theirs but it doesn't seem to get a lot of love mm. whereas like say ocean planet backbone from the sky the first three tracks yeah i've seen all of those live uh heaviest match in the universe is brilliant live song mm. really should be a staple of their career and flying whales as well yeah yeah well that's, that's one of the earliest songs at least when i talk to people about Gojira, they think, oh yeah, Flying Whales is a fantastic song. Actually, you might not know this. So this this yeah. album has one video. Uh, have you seen it? I don't think I have, no. no. Okay, I, I want to see if you can guess this. From the track listing, yeah. can you guess what song they released as a video? Because it's, it's not the choice I would have done. It's not. So, was it potentially Ocean Planet? No. Um... I know, because because you're just gonna go for the yeah. song probably. It, it's uh, to serious. Is it? It's the video. Yeah, which is why I had a slightly tough That's time a getting. Slightly odd choice, I think. Yeah. yeah, to serious is. There's a couple of tracks in this album. Like the one criticism I do have is about three tracks in this album that don't hit quite as hard as the rest. Mm. Like in the wilderness is a bit too long. The second half is incredible, but it takes a while getting there. To serious is another one. It has a lovely build up of. The first, uh, it's like sort of split into two tracks here. To Mars, which is this two-minute, gen- very gentle, just guitar with like Joe like speaking in a low voice mm. under it. And then Jocerius comes in with these quite hefty riffs. But for a single, it was a really bizarre choice because it's really built up by the nice guitar bit at yeah, the start. Yeah. And they cut that and then shrink the song down. Well, because it, it's, it's the whole sort of thing of the album. You've got the song to Mars before, um, from Mars to Sirius afterwards. And that's the whole thing of the album. The two songs really work in tandem with each other doesn't really work to cut them in half and then try to sell one as yeah. a single. Yeah, it's, it's I just thought, choice. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was just an interesting thing to point out with it. Mm. Um, mm. 
So yeah, like the other song I want to get to, like Heaviest Mass in the Universe, is one of my personal favourites from yeah. it because it's just fast and hefty, but it builds this really cool ending where, like, this is probably one of the first examples of Joe probably trying something like, quite interesting vocally, where he starts playing this like um, riff where he's just hammering on a note, and then like does a vocal pattern that harmonises with that note yeah, and it yeah. just makes such a cool kind of catchy sound and I recently saw a video and this I think this video is quite Gojira shared it recently it's quite a good thing to show why they've got so big so there's this YouTube series um, called oh, I forget the name of it something like Lost in Vegas where these two mm. guys who don't really know like I'm not sure what their musical background is yeah, but they check yeah. out songs they by bands they'd never heard of mm. and they've been recommended more and more metal and they don't really get it like <laughs> there's a video of them reacting to bleed where they're like what on earth is this but they they put on Gojira uh, heaviest match in the universe and in seconds they're like stop this is perfect mm. they, like they're not metal guys but by the end of it they're like this is just complete package yeah, and it's that really yeah. interesting you like for some reason and I can't put my finger on why Gojira have found a way to break into the mainstream yeah, with a yeah. FDR sound yeah because it's almost as if there's something that's not really in your face aggressive which a lot of other metal bands have despite being really heavy yeah it's hard to pin down exactly what that is no but it just yeah no idea it just like a band I'll eternally be disappointed with because I found this in 2006. I found this like you know this this sounded like future music when I found mm, it. Like, yeah. I, I and it really actually was very telling of the future. But this is still my favourite bit. Yeah, yeah. Like um, I've sort of made in my notes here. Like um, the really interesting thing about this, listening to it now, is this was like five years pre-Gent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which like I, I may be like obviously sick from the sugar of the catalyst for Gent. But I can't believe like the kind of rhythmic punch of Gojira wasn't part of or yeah, influenced yeah. a lot of those bands. Yeah, you can definitely sort of hear that thing kicking away in here, which would grow up to be all you know, gem bands and that. Hmm. And yeah, like if you haven't revisited this album in a while, because I imagine a lot of people listening will already own this one. Go back to it; it's surprisingly good. Like, yeah. um, re-listening to it, I completely forgot about the track "World to Come." And when yeah, it came on, I was yeah. like, "Oh, that was a really nice surprise." It's like a really odd um, kind of. Tra- it's like a melodic track with a really odd trade-off between Joe screaming and then doing this almost cynic-style robot voice. Yeah, <laughs> there are quite a few moments on it which sort of feel machine-like, and there's a nice contrast I feel between the sort of lyrical content and song structures about environmental problems and then this weird sort of machine thing and I think that contrast is used quite effectively a lot of the time the idea that machines and machinery are helping to destroy the planet paired off with environmentalism is, is kind of interesting because mm-hmm. a lot of the themes they're exploring yeah yeah I think we could probably go on about Gojira all day but we should probably <laughs> uh, go to a track so yeah. to kind of highlight like basically how I'm and I'll be up for a debate on this. Maybe it's the next album. But I think this is the most brutal they ever got. So we're going to play yeah. probably the heftiest track from the album. And this is one you can still catch live regularly. This is Backbone. Breaking, breakable! 
to death metal like we began with Bolt Thrower uh, this is well it's not really an album it's an EP it's, it's very much an EP <laughs> it's about 14 minutes long about 17 if you get the uh, edition with the bonus track which is originally the Japanese edition uh, this is Vader's The Art of War 
which is one of the first bits of death metal I ever heard. So weirdly enough, this is sort of going into how I got into like some well, more extreme metal too. Equally, I think this is the first pure death metal release I ever bought. Yeah. Which and, is why and, I've got such love for it. Well, it's, it is incredible. It is the epitome of quality over quantity. Mm. You talk about a lot of albums which are a little over long. We even talked about it a little bit with some other albums in this show. But this could not possibly be accused of that. And I don't think you can accuse it any of the songs on it of being anything other than sort of a perfect distillation of Vader's style of death metal. Or at least sort of transitioning from the early Vader towards sort of their mid-period. Yeah, so I want to chuck an EP in here because often EPs get a bit overlooked in mm. terms of, um, you know, albums of year lists or whatever. And we should say as well, this list isn't really albums of the year. This is just five albums we thought were very mm. interesting that I kind of spotted at the time. Yeah. Um, if you know Vader at all, Vader are much like Bolt Thrower, just the eternal death metal powerhouse. They've been doing the same thing since forever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We covered them on a previous episode before on their al- older albums. And they, they ever so slightly change up the formula with lineup changes. It's always led by Peter, vocalist and guitarist. He's the main songwriter, also bass player on all the albums as well. Yeah. And it's just the driving force behind this. And he knows what he likes, and it's this kind of like motorhead influenced death metal. Yeah, and... you've got some sort of like thrashy influences in this with some of the riffs. It's very fast, it's very aggressive. Um, yeah, but they have their, their quite a unique spin on death metal. No mm. one sounds quite like Vader, no one's quite managed that style of vocals and style of songwriting as well. Yeah, another super clear vocalist. Mm. But yeah, mm. so the interesting thing so what Vader have always done throughout their career, this is just after their seventh album, I believe, is. They'll do the album, and then they'll try something weird in the interim. Maybe mm. it'll be an EP, maybe it'll be a covers album, all sorts of... So they have, like, just an absolute mass of EPs throughout their career. A lot of them relatively disposable. Like, mm. Sophis is particularly one that I, I just don't rate at all. But this one's quite fun, because the thing they tried out on this that has become a Vader staple since is adding kind of faux orchestral lead-ups yeah. to their songs just to give a a slightly different feel and this has the first one Parabellum is my favourite lead up they've done it is like a one minute thirty intro to a three minute long song (laughs) but it is such a perfect gradual build yeah yeah it feels like it should almost be part of the same song it's got this gradual orchestral build up you feel the snare drum come in and it's got this sort of war march going on yeah yeah. that builds up into uh, this is the war (laughs) and like the way that it builds up into like instead of just having this military snare drum going you've got the snare drum backed up by guitars doing the same passage but chugging and then all hell breaks loose when it actually gets into this is the war where you have this blast beat that blew my mind when i was younger i I still barely believe that drummers are capable of this level of technicality so the previous album we covered there's like i think about 10 episodes back was uh litany which was their Mm. amazing drummer doc who sadly passed away a little while before this so the drum we have on this album is darier and while he's not doc darier is an absolute monster drummer. drummer absolute powerhouse like He's not the most inventive, but like he 
he's just so quick with his hands and feet. Like, yeah, and he, he does some things on this album which completely, well, EP, which completely sort of revolutionised how I thought about drumming and how it could be used. You know, it could be used as this sort of like sonic blast which could not only hold the band together but it could be part of this sort of very visceral assault on you as you listen to it. And yeah, This Is The War is the song which proves that. And yeah. Yeah. So a bit of things about like the, the lineup on this. So as always with Vader, Vader is... Peter goes into studio with a drummer and then invites the lead guitarist to come along. Yeah. This album has probably, like, this is my favourite period in time Vader lineup. So we have Mauser on guitar, who's mm. been with the band since uh, their third album, Black to the Blind. And um, for live purposes, Novi on bass. And Novi is a genius bass player. Mm. Interestingly enough, um, Novi and uh, Mauser were both in the band Deezer Array with mm. ex-drummer Doc playing drums, who were basically, if you want more Vader, with slightly <laughs> different uh, vocals and more audible bass. Deezer Array have got three great mm. albums. Mm. Um, and then the um, all the kind of orchestral bits on this, like Parabellum and then later the track Banners in the Wind, are composed by a guy called, I think, Sigma? Who Sigma played- or Sigma. I mean, yeah, does, he has a... Actual name as well that's much harder to pronounce. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's why Peter refers to himself as Peter. That's not yeah. his real yeah. name. Um, but yeah, like he plays, he's also plays keyboards in the Visania mm. with Darie on drums and uh, Orion, behemoth bass player on vocals. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. So basically, this whole thing of like the massively incestuous Polish Polish scene. Metal, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, this album sort of similar to how we described Litany, I guess. There's just this album's a little less furious than Litany. Is. Yeah, Litany yeah. has this like amazing aggression to it, and like arguably a lot of songs on this are longer than you'd find on Litany because they're like under two minutes. Yeah, yeah. you still have really short songs, nothing over four minutes, um, and really straightforward, a bit groovier, I think. Certainly in yeah, some places, yeah. like Leaders, but still has this like really concentrated sort of death metal aggression in it, backed up by really fast, precise drums. Like, brutal but simplistic riffing, which is really fast and precise, which mm. gives it this real sort of, like, really, really well-oiled machine. And if you do watch live videos of Vader, they pull this off beautifully. They're always on point. Yeah, yeah. The the sad thing about this is, so this album was a great lead-up to the... Like, so this EP was a great lead-up to the follow-up album, Impressions in Blood, which is, like, if you enjoy the track we played from this later, go to Impressions in Blood. It's the only... There's only this and the beast beforehand with this lineup. Like, mm. unfortunately, Daria and Mouse have quit after that one. And it's just more of the same. It's more of these orchestral build ups to just pounding, very yeah. riff heavy death metal. And, and the other big difference with this um, from Litany is Mouser gets more and more into melodic leads. So mm, we still mm. get um, all Peter's leads are these whammy bar shred attacks, and then yeah. Mouser's are more memorable kind of melodic style which is quite different to early Vader if you know yeah you still have some of the sort of like deicide and morbid angel influence kind of short all Mm. over the place solos but um, on the bonus track actually Die uh, you do get some more melodic guitar parts which you'd see come in more and more yeah um, I think we'll keep it short and sweet with this one because it is a 14 minute long it'd, one. It'd be wrong if we talked for longer than the EP <laughs> itself. <laughs> but yeah, basically it's good start to finish. If, effectively you've only got four proper tracks. Like This is the war, then you've got Lead Us which slows things down a bit, a bit more lead guitar. Little uh, interlude of Banners in the Wind which mm. I kind of enjoy. It's just like a 50 second 
atmospheric noise. Yeah. And then you get what colour is your blood, which is definitely in the Vader camp of like super catchy chorus with quite yeah. silly lyrics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if you're into your metal but you're struggling with death metal, maybe give this one a try. It's really short. You haven't lost much time if you don't get on with it. Yeah. It really helped me get into more extreme metal. So. And I think a lot of that's Peter's voice isn't quite so intense. It's less yeah. guttural. It's less bassy. It's, mm. Um, mm. it's got more of an overlap with a lot of like the kind of more aggressive thrash. Yeah, yeah. You're sort of like, not really yarling, but like slightly distorted yelling type thing. Kind of like Sodom or Creator. Yeah, like like yeah. he's kind of just taking that a bit further. Mm, mm. And yeah, then then finish with Death and Silence, which as uh, Rob was pointing out earlier, it's a bit of a weird track. Yeah, it has a really, really weird abrupt ending which seems to come out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> but it's really good. Again, it's one of the ones which is faster again, like loads of blast beats, just showing off speed and precision of really catchy riffs. Yeah, yeah. So from this, we thought we'd go for Lead Us.
album before we tie the concept back together to talk about some of the other stuff going on in 2005. So not like some of this I would have got, some of this I'd missed at the time and have come back to you later. But like really want to prove the point that this year is amazingly interesting. Like there was so much variety and stuff going on and it was kind of getting recognised. So mm. just like running through a few, there's albums we've covered before, like um, Akakoka's Words of Guns Spoken was this year. Yeah, uh, we covered Cathedral recently as well, which is another Garden of Unearthly Delights, which is a fantastic release in 2005. And Reverend Bazaar's Crush the Insects, which yeah, we covered on the same, same episode. episode. <laughs> um, so some other really important ones. You had uh, Arch Enemy's Doomsday Machine, which we're going to come to next episode, but is like one of the most important albums for me personally ever. It's probably not that great, but it just holds <laughs> such a kind of position in time. Mm-hmm. Um, Phonics, Cedic uh, Bale, which is um, like probably the highlight of Phonics' career. I've mm-hmm. I've always thought very different from what they're doing now, but is this a really amazing kind of mix of black metal with like melodic death metal sensibilities? I highly recommend it. Uh, Clutch's Robot Hive. Yeah, which is a great Clutch album. They're fucking awesome. Mm. Crafts Fuck the Universe, which <laughs> is so good. Like, properly nihilistic black metal. Mm. If you've not heard it, you have to go for it. Um, Ethel Duas, Pain Necessary to Know. I'd say another band hitting a career highlight mm. of, like, just weird, like, nonsensical jazz meets black metal. I'm really fond of this album. Yeah. No, which one um, a lot of people consider Alien to be the highlight of Strapping Young Lad. I don't agree. I think City's better, and that's an opinion which a lot of people have as well. Yeah, but still, yeah. like it's it's an amazing album. It's got some fantastic songs on it. Like Love is so well known. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. huge huge highlight. Probably why that album's so popular because that yeah. song is so popular. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, another career highlight: Avokan's Antithesis of Light. Mm, so Avokan mm. in a similarish vein to Ahab, but with slightly less of the melodic side. But this is a crushing Funeral Doom yeah, album. Yeah. One of my all-time favourites. Yeah, and you can see all sorts of movements which then become really huge afterwards. Like, you know, with Agacocca coming around at this point, And then you get all the offshoots from Agacocca and other bands doing that sort of weird black metal thing. Yeah, and Funeral yeah. Doom becomes huge now. We've got bands like Bellwitch who are being rated top of this year as well. Yeah, yeah. It's now all over the place. And you can see the beginnings of it around here. Yeah, looking back to like, because I sort of discovered Funeral Doom would have been like 2008, 2009. Mm. I can't believe that genre's got popular. Yeah, yeah. It seems like <laughs> such a weird genre to become huge, but it somehow has. Another one that's massively important to me this year was Exodus's Shovelheaded Kill Machine. Yeah. Now, it's not one of the best albums ever, but at the time it was the first like really extreme sounding thrash album I'd heard. And I, this and. Um, the one before, like, they have a comeback one, Tempo of the Dab. I played holes in these CDs. Like, I know mm. this inside out. Possibly not the best, but I do think really fun. Uh, trying to think of some other cool ones along this list. Sugar's Catch 33. Mm. Mm. Their really weird offshoot album where they uh, use the program drums. Yeah. Drums yeah. for the whole thing. And it, some of the strangest ideas. Like, oh, massively important one. So we talked about in the Tech Death episode... Um, how uh, uh, Epitaph by mm, uh, Necrophagist, yeah. yeah, was this turning point in tech death. Mm. And it really was. But there's an album that followed up after that that I think is nearly as important. And this is Niall's Annihilation of the Wicked. Yeah, this album yeah. got so many people into playing fast, like, mind-bending, crushing death metal. Yeah. And I like when I came across this, I'd never heard anything like it at the time. 
I remember being so confused as a teenager seeing um, <laughs> the video for Sacrifice Under Sebek. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I remember seeing as well. Nile are one of those ones just so hard to get, but once you've got to that level where you can get really into now, there's so much to uncover and enjoy. I found those vocals hilarious. Oh, it's so time. funny <laughs> when you first hear it, yeah. And then you reach the point where you really can vat any sort of irony, you just love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in the more rock spectrum, Porcupine 2 is Deadwing, which yeah. ties into something we're about to cover, so we'll probably come back to that. Mm. Um, Primordial's The Gathering Wilderness, which is like the point where Primordial found their sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, an album I absolutely love, and I imagine none of you have heard of, The Project Hates Armageddon March Eternal. Fantastic <laughs> album. Yeah. Possibly their best. Like It's a close one. It's uh, So this is like industrial death metal meets like weird almost pop music yeah, and, yeah, well, and everything in between. Yeah, yeah, sort of like pop female vocals with this crushing death metal. Uh, just before they got their now long-time drummer Dirk Verburen, who's a fantastic drummer currently playing on Megadeth, but this album has some of the best programmed drums I've ever heard. Mm. You, you wouldn't know it if you weren't told. Oh, completely. One that was absolutely huge for me and we mentioned earlier was Trivium's Ascendancy. Mm. This was the album where... I just suddenly discovered guitar solos and <laughs> scream vocals, and it was just like that. Was at the point in time was was the best thing I'd ever heard. Now I can look back at it and go, it's got a pretty weak second half, and it's nowhere near as good as I remember. <laughs> but it was really important at the time. Important at the time, yeah. And another thing that was massively important, many, many of you may remember, the Roadrunner United All Star Sessions. Uh, Roadrunner U, uh, Roadrunner label, I think, was celebrating what their twenty fifth anniversary, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they got all all their various musicians in to record an album, and it's actually pretty good. It's all over the fucking place because you've got new metal guys mixing <laughs> with like old guard death metal people. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pete Steele, <laughs> um, and then a load of the new metalcore people. Yeah, like, a song that is just mind blowing. The lineup on it, and I maintain, is brilliant. Yeah, is one with Danny Filth doing vocals called "Dawn of the Golden Age." Danny Filth is on vocals. Matt Heafy is on rhythm guitar. Sean Malone of Cynic <laughs> is on bass, and Mike Smith of Suffocations on drums. God, that's weird. The the Sean Malone Mike Smith rhythm section is the coolest mm, thing. Mm. <laughs> It, it's very hit or miss, but there's moments like that where you're just like, I don't know why these people are in a room. Like, yeah, it sounds in principle like it would be terrible. But... This is a song with King Diamond and Il Nino's drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's great. It's, yeah. <laughs> like, this was so good for me at age 15 because I'd never heard of King Diamond. Yeah, um, yeah. But like, it's how I discovered King Diamond. It's how I discovered Suffocation. It's how I discovered mm. Cynic. Yeah, yeah, like, that's cool. All these cool guys. Like, and Annihilator, first song, has oh, an amazing nice. Jeff Waters solo. And I was like, who the bloody hell played that? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's cool if it gets some awareness out about different bands. Yeah, it, It's got good moments. It's not great, but it's got some fun <laughs> stuff on it. So yeah, and another thing. So to explain the kind of um, landscape at the time, I thought I'd go to, for any listeners aren't from the UK, you might not know, Metal Hammer was our, like, our big Mm. metal exclusive magazine monthly release there was Crying Magazine but that was kind of more rock and sometimes covered metal yeah, yeah. Metal Hammer tended to be more straight down the line metal now this is their top 20 and I think this gives some idea of just the mesh of 
everything coming together at this point in time. Like, no one knew what was popular. There's, yeah, because there's some interesting, really good stuff in here. Mm. A few albums we've mentioned are on here. Um, albums we've talked about previously are on here. And then, as you'll find out, there's a couple of things which are a bit like, well, that hasn't aged well, has it? So, number one is the album we're going to cover in a minute, Opeth's Ghost Reveries, which... yeah. yeah. Deservedly number one. Definitely best album of the year. Yeah. <laughs> um, second, Judas Priest's Angel of Retribution. Pretty interesting Judas Priest comeback yeah. album. Yeah. Features the spinal tap moment Loch Ness. <laughs> if you don't know it, look it up. It's, it's a great song, but lyrically absolutely hilarious. Mm, yeah. mm. Then number three, Bullet for My Valentine's Debut, The Poison, which is... Which I'm sure we all remember fondly. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Number four, Avenged Sevenfold's City of Evil. So this is the rise of the you know yeah. the lead guitar stuff. So when Avenged Sevenfold becoming really big because it's such a huge thing when I was getting into metal, I've never really got them, but you know. But yeah, like all the kind of rock and metal kids at my school owned this album, mm. and mm. similarly, everyone owned the next one, System of Down's Mesmerize and Hypnotize. Their yeah. Yeah. sort of not quite double album, which probably should have been one album because Hypnotize <laughs> mostly sucks from memory. <laughs> but also, this can, you can see like the end of like sort of new metal having a sway. Yeah, here. yeah. Followed up by another one of the rising stars, Trivium's Ascendancy. Um, and then later on, got Clutch. Yeah. yeah. Which, Clutch and number eight. And followed up by him. <laughs> a, a, a band yeah. probably best left to history. Um, yeah, yeah, and with Judas Priest right next to Bullet for My Valentine as well. It's such an interesting, weird mesh of stuff. Yeah, later on we got um, Sentence next to God Forbid. Sentence, yeah. interesting band from Finland who started off kind of black metal and then kind of calmed down. Mm. And then, God forbid, like kind of a metalcore band that very much a metalcore also ran. They never quite broke out there. And then mm. towards the end of the list, you've got Meshuggah's Catch 33, Grand Magus Wolf's Return, yeah. and in Cathedral's Garden of Unearthly Delights. Yeah. All, yeah. Great, All great albums. albums. <laughs> yeah, it's, I just felt that was like a really interesting snapshot. Yeah, yeah, and interesting because it's sort of, it's towards right at the end of Cathedral's career where they're doing sort of this weird stuff. Beginning of Grand Magus, really, before mm. they got super big. Um, and yeah, with Meshuggah, they were to become bigger and bigger and bigger throughout time after this. Yeah, yeah, completely. So now, we're going to get into it. This is a band we sort of covered on the end of the year list, but I've been wanting to cover on the podcast yeah. for an age. This is, like, me and Ron probably hinted at this, but, like, for me especially, Opeth is by far and away my favourite band. Don't know why, like, quite they've managed to hit that point, but... There's something very special about Opeth, and uh, before, you know, I was getting... Well, I, was, I think it was just after I'd heard some Vader and some other death metal, Opeth were the band which really convinced me that extreme metal could be incredible and it could have the most interesting songwriting and include all these other influences and still be something really really special and have its own identity and mm. yeah the, the thing of Opeth that I always get is there's no bands that have cloned Opeth's sound impossible no to do one. It, no it, one it, can it do seems it. completely I've seen so many try yeah. and it's it's either like ends up interesting but nothing like them or a lot that are just really bad degrees of failure where it's yeah. just like yeah. so uh, Opeth formed around 1990. Like, I mean, they're not a band we really have to go into too much detail explaining. Mm. I don't think everyone's probably heard a couple of Opeth tracks at least, much like Gojira. But at the point in time we're looking at with Ghost Reveries, is their eighth album, the debut for Roadrunner Records. Um, the lineups kind of solidified quite a um, a lot of the members who are in the band at this point have been in the band for quite a while, mm. and they're at the peak of that kind of what Opeth always sort of did was mix heavy and light 
Mm. What they were doing for this kind of middle portion of the career was really mixing this kind of morbid angel influence death metal with a very 70s and 60s prog. Yeah, sort of your soft, mellow prog things from back then. And it very much is... Like, they build in out between them, but they very much have morbid angel bits and prog <laughs> bits. Uh, but the genius of Opeth is the way they interlink. Yeah, yeah, and makes it work. It doesn't feel as if a band is switching for novelty between these two styles. Both of them sound like Opeth. You could play either moments from this mm. album or bits from Damnation, bits from Deliverance or something like that, and you'd immediately know it was Opeth. They have this very distinct style, which is the thing that no one's been able to copy, I think, which goes through both the heavy and the light bits. So no one's been able to do either in the way Opeth do it, because they have this very unique way of writing. Yeah, yeah. So it's like getting into it, like, um, most of you have probably heard something off this album. This seemed to be the break... So, I was going to say breakout. Many would argue Blackwater Park, their fifth mm. album, is the breakout one, because that's when they started getting really known. But when they got to this, their eighth album, they had the Roadrunner distribution behind them. And I found they were turning up everywhere on free CDs. They even had a very ill-advised music video for this. They had to edit down a ten-minute song to five minutes. <laughs> if you know what yeah. that song actually sounds like, it's unlistenable. It's very weird, yeah. So, yeah. And this album had a lot of very accessible points. So it had the... Probably like the cleanest, brightest production of any of their albums yet. Yeah. Which Michael Ackerfeld was always cited as a... Uh, a, a mistake afterwards. He He's not massively happy with how this mm. album ended up sounding. But for me personally, and I fully admit nostalgia is playing into this, this yeah. is one of my favourite Opeth albums. Mm. I really Agreed. think it, it stands up there with classics like Blackwater Park, Still Life, um, Mom's Your Hearse. Mm. Uh, like, this, to, to me, to my mind, is the end of the truly great Opeth era. So I've, I've written in my notes, they have seven perfect albums, which is Morning Rise Through to Ghost Reveries. Mm, mm. Uh, and everything after that, I think, never quite hit like this one did, or like Blackwater Park did. This is just the end of this perfect sound yeah. they had. So there's, I mean, there's an interesting point in that, and there's some membership changes after this. So we lose Martin Lopez, who's a long-time OPEF drummer, and Peter Lindgren, the guitarist, leaves as well. Mm. Uh, Martin Lopez is one of my favourite drummers of all time. He is a fantastic drummer, and he lends... OPEF always sound, to me, very fluid. They always move very very sort of smoothly between different genres and even their riffs have this just sort of sense of movement to them there's a texture to everything that Opeth write that never feels sort of stuck or stale or machine like it's always very fluid in a way which no other band really sounds like and Martin Lopez is such a huge part of that he's oh, such yeah, a yeah. natural drummer he has such great feel for everything that he plays uh, yeah, and he's out in full force on this album. He just has these really lovely fills and really lovely grooves, fits into these weird time signatures that they have a lot of the time so beautifully. So I've read Mike sort of saying about this, like Martin Lopez's real skill was writing drum fills, and it, it's mm. undeniable. Mm. If you watch, say, the Lamentations DVD, which is the only DVD with him on, you can watch in detail these yeah. these fills he comes up with, these beautiful prog rock things. that can, They can go on for bars and bars, and they are the perfect join. On top of that, you get uh, Martin Mendez, very confusingly named, um, <laughs> bass playing. And his bass playing is spectacular. It's yeah, so fluid. Yeah. It's, it's very jazz influenced. He never sits still. He's always doing something different to the guitar. He's mm, always, mm. like, some riffs he drives and some he adds interesting textures in the background. Some he takes a more lead stance. And then on top of that, you've got the brilliant intertwining. And, and this is 
because they formed the band together as teenagers and have wrote together all the way through to this, Peter and Michael's dueling guitars are just mesmeric. Yeah, yeah. The the way they switch between acoustic to a, like heavy electric and can perfectly blend, sometimes putting them over each other, occasionally breaking its way into super melodic solos. Mm, mm. Like the solos are so well written throughout Opeth's career. And like Yeah, yeah. And, and guitar tones that are just so good. You can tell these guys have plugged away for ages finding how to get that perfect yeah, sound. Yeah. And there's just the supreme ability to lock in together into one of the most cohesive units there is. Mm. You know, I've never saw Opeth with Lopez, but you can watch some of the things. And even, and today as well, like they're still so spot on with everything that they do. And that will come like on this album, as you were saying, having played together for so long, yeah. you can just lock in. And on songs which are far more complex than they sound, there's all these weird things that are going on and slightly odd time signatures, which when you first listen to it, you won't really notice. You'll just think, oh, this sounds really good. Yeah, because yeah. they manage to disguise all of this stuff that's going on and you, you just sort of lap it up. It just sort of flows really smoothly. And then when you really stop to analyse it, there's some really weird and slightly complex stuff going on, which they lock in to do perfectly. Yeah, like Opeth are always, and possibly less so a lot of their newer stuff, because like, as many of you will know, like their new direction the last three albums, they've effectively turned into a prog rock mm, band, mm. which I, I've got no issue with. It's just I enjoyed this more. This yeah, was more yeah. my thing. But um, yeah, as Rob was saying, their riffs are so massively... They're like a secret tech band. <laughs> yeah. They're so complex. So much of their songwriting will be like, oh, we, we've got like two bars of 4-4, four, four, and then it's like 5-8, 7-9, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like, yeah. 7-9, that doesn't work, but whatever. Like, uh, like, it is just like all over the place. But always sounds melodic. It always fits. It never feels forced or in your face. Like... It's very restrained but complex. Yeah, yeah. It's almost that sort of writing, those sort of times can just sort of naturally occur when they're sort of writing things and just mm. comes out there. It's not done to show off or to make things sound really sort of off to your ear, which is a technique which can work really well in a lot of more technical bands. Mm. It just fits perfectly. It feels like these riffs could not be played in any other way and any attempt to do so without this style of writing would just end up sounding weirdly flat. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's a lot of other things that make Opeth, like, very unique. So, guitar-wise, they uh, both guitarists play PRSs, which are not mm. not traditional metal guitars. Um, Mendez uses a Fender Jazz for most stuff, and often the fretless Fender Jazz as well. Um, and they don't tune down. This whole album's in E or drop D, which, again, if you know guitaring, is... Like, it's like how Your standard you get... tuning. It's it's almost unbelievable that they get this heavy sound out of a lot of the songs on this. Ghost Reverie sounds like sort of Grand Conjuration, like the kind of single track from this album, sounds as heavy as anything on say like Nevermore album we were covering yeah. earlier. Yeah. But it's tuned what six steps <laughs> up, like, it, but it yeah, doesn't. Yeah. They 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 make so make do with so much with what they've got, and like Mendes's crazy bass playing. It's all done on a four string. Yeah. Occasionally yeah, a five yeah. string. Like, he doesn't need a hundred strings to do it. And mm. both Mike and Peter are on six string guitars. But it, it's the playing of people who now you'd expect to see like bloody eight strings and like yeah, yeah. down tunes. But they just, are, like, <laughs> they've just got your standard instruments. And yeah, like the sounds, the 
sort of like slight discordant heavy riffs they could get out of a lot of these things are incredible because it never there is some sort of discordance going on but it never feels really that abrasive it still feels it's got that opeth sort of flow to the Mm. whole thing and even these complex weird time signature riffs just flow so um the the thing that's really interesting about this album compared to the previous ones so when we go back to Still Life, their fourth album, Still Life is the point where the lineup solidifies for all the four guys we previously mentioned on that album. It's the first one of them mm. all recording together. But then the follow-up, Blackwater Park, they go into studio with Steve Wilson of Porcupine mm. Tree, and he adds all these keyboards and textures to the sound that previously weren't there. Because Mike said in interviews he was like scared of using keyboards because he's like, that's not metal. Um, so he like, kind of resisted it for ages until finding a kind of prog mentor in Steve yeah. Wilson. But this, their eighth album, so the the one they do without Steve, so they had to get a keyboard player in. Yeah. So they got yeah. Spiritual Beggars and regular like, Arch Enemy contributor Peer Weirberg in on keyboards as a fifth member, mm. like finally mm. adding a fifth guy to the lineup, which they've had ever since. Yeah. 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 And like, so there's a real difference this album between it and the previous three, where it's a completely different keyboard player. And so there's, a, there's this other texture over all the music. Yeah. And when you've got some of these sort of karma moments like Hours of Wealth and Isolation Years, mm. you've got this sort of keyboards which just add this extra level and like would really highlight some of Opeth's most beautiful moments with this sort of stuff. Hours of Wealth particularly is very highly keyboard mm. driven. And it, it, when we say keyboards, this is not your kind of Symphony X, Sonatica kind of keyboard sound. We're talking... A very kind of 60s vibe, lots of Hammond organ, mm-hmm. lots of like, and it's really fuzzy, subtle stuff. There's no solos yeah. with it. There's like little bits of like maybe more clean piano kind of tone. Um, but yeah, it's all kind of mixed in there. And it, it just sits so perfectly with all the guitars and everything in this album. And then you'll get the bits where it comes in in the heavy parts, like the third track, Beneath the Mire, which starts off with this sort of like slight, pretty heavy guitar riff. And then there's just this sort of crazy Hammond organ over the top. It's a really cool combination of stuff. It's sort of like when you go back in time and you look at what Deep Purple did with the Hammond organ bringing it into rock music. Opeth have done that, except they've just done it with death metal and yeah. like black metal influences and all this other crazy stuff and taken it to this nth degree, which no one would have even thought of doing with music that heavy. No, no, completely. Um, it, it's so interesting, some of the things they attempted on this album and albums before, like, say, in Bang of the Hounds, the second track, which is one of the more... It's a little more death metal centric. Certainly mm. has some of the heavier moments, but like in the middle, everything drops out for just this cool drum and bass yeah. groove that goes yeah. on for about three minutes yeah. <laughs> with just slight textures layered over from everyone else before building back up into hefty death metal. But then hefty death metal with like bright keyboard notes yeah, over it yeah. to make a really strange sound. Like <laughs> so, um, yeah. But I mean, we'll probably go on at length about a bit more of this, but. Another thing I want to talk about at the point of time with this, this is, we're saying the lineup sort of solidified here. It also collapses very soon after yeah, this. Yeah. So um, drummer Martin Lopez apparently was having a lot of uh, health issues at the time and completely had no stamina. Mm. Uh, and they're saying the recording of this album was a total nightmare because he had to record in tiny chunks. Yeah. It really doesn't sound like this. Like No, it they, sounds, yeah, it sounds as if it was all recorded almost in one take. Yeah, it absolutely, but... So his writing is still there, and I think that's what gives it this massive, massive sound. But, um, yeah, like, he just wasn't quite up for it. And it basically had to drop out of the band on the tour mm. following it. 
Um, amazingly, I wish I'd seen this. They got Gene Hoagland in to take over for the rest of the tour. Yeah, so Gene Hoagland's in the video for Grand Conjuration. Yes, yeah, yeah. That would have been really interesting to see, yeah. And the, the old band photo as well is quite cool. But yeah, it's like another thing that kind of led to the interesting change in production. So previously we had Steve Wilson. This album we get uh, Jens Bogren uh, in, who's like, you, you'll own a load of albums with mm. him on as producer, engineer, mixing, mastering. And he's great at his job. But with the benefit of hindsight, I can see what Mike means. This album is a bit too clean and bright. There is something, something slightly, it sounds a bit too modern because Opeth are always yeah, striving yeah. for a combination of the mid 80s with like 1969. Yeah, yeah. Having a very bright modern production doesn't quite work. I feel Watershed also has this issue. Mm, it's just mm. too precise, it's too perfect. I want a bit more mud in their sound. So, something great. interesting I think that comes into, and that's the sort of. Um, then delving into the story of this album. So it's sort of a concept album, but not quite, because mm. there's some songs on it, like Isolation Years, which have nothing to do with the whole story. But I'm looking into some, like, there's analysis of the lyrics and things like that. And the basic idea seems to be is this is a song about the occult and the idea of summoning Satan. And it's the idea of a man who summons Satan and ends up killing his mother. And a lot of the album is about this happening and then how he tries to deal with that and come to terms with it being chased by things. So it's not in the order that you'd expect it to be either. So the Grand Conjuration is the summoning of Satan. Okay. Um, you've got lyrics like Devil Cracked the Earthly Shell Foretold She Was the One, which is where the devil is summoned um, and he is poured into uh, the man who's the sort of protagonist of the story. And there's lots of lyrics about being poured into. Um, but then obviously it's Satan. So the guy gets manipulated, ends up killing his mother, foretold she was the one. Um, but this happens near the end of the album. Yeah, this is track seven. <laughs> chronologically, this is the sort of early thing. So it's almost like you've got a Tarantino movie in an album. Um, and then you've got things like Ghost of Perdition, where you've got lyrics, uh, Ghost of Mother, Lingering Death, Holding Her Down, Channeling Darkness, Hemlock of the Gods. This is the act of killing his mother. Uh, you've then got a lots of metaphors which come up throughout it. So you've got hounds um, yeah. used in uh, hounds and... Harkman Forest, which is people he's running from, or the ideas, the things he's done that he's running from. And then you've got Atonement and Hours of Wealth, which is sort of coming to terms with what has happened. Um, and then there's Myers, which are used a lot through Beneath the Mire and Bane yeah, of the Hounds, yeah. which is, you know, the idea of being held back by these things. So there's a lot more depth that people go into and talk about the lyrical structures. I thought that was really interesting and makes me listen to the album in a slightly different way, as if it's a story that's been sort of pulled and put in a weird order mm -hmm. um but i can really see why because it's inspired by michael looking at some of his wife's books about lots of occult things he wanted to write something about the occult which is really fascinating there's a lot of metal albums about that um and then with that huge bright production over something which really has quite a dark and foreboding occult story i can sort of see why you would yeah, want that yeah like the thing is well like lyrically is quite a departure from a lot of their other stuff there mm. there's not another album that quite has this kind of darkness about the lyrics yeah, like yeah. one really kind of like just just intenseness to it mm. like a lot of mm. the stuff's more melancholy um well and also after this you get on to watershed and from that point on michael writes a lot more personally about mm. things that he you know has experienced in his own personal life whereas beforehand it was all about other things like stories and fantasies and things like that and other concepts so it's a bit of a change there after this album the thing as well because we touched on lyrics probably should go and do vocals i i'd say this is probably my favorite performance of his on an album i can't believe we haven't talked about the vocals yet yeah uh, <laughs> michael Agbo is one of my favorite vocalists of all time 
his death metal growls are something else. Yeah, yeah, truly. Yeah, there's pretty much no one other than possibly Dan Swano who can do this sort of thing that he does with this like hugely textured, deep growls. There's nothing that sounds quite like it. And, and like, and much like a lot of the other vocalists we covered, spectacularly clear. You can hear what he's saying. Yeah. His growls. Yeah. Um. And and can hold notes for an age. There's a scream oh. in Harlequin Forest. I counted earlier today. Lasts for 14 seconds. It's insane. Yeah. Which is a hell of a bellow. Like. Yeah. And it just like. He has an intensity and power to his vocals without losing clarity. But then also, beautiful cleans. The guy can really Amazing sing. Clean vocals. There's some great examples on this album. I mean, he's really come into his own on some of the more proggy albums recently, like Pale Communion and Sorceress yeah, have yeah. some of his best clean vocals ever. But Hours of Wealth's got some amazing sections, like completely unaccompanied. You just have some clean vocals and then more instrumentation comes in. Yeah, it's really great. He can manage this sort of angel and demon type thing with his different vocal styles, which seems almost unfair but it's so good to listen to yeah and also he has a real grasp of what he wants from a sound like he uses a lot of effects on the clean vocals mm. like he's like steve wilson mocks him for his favor on being the the voice down the phone, phone. Line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's a really cool effect and he really helps in like the subtle passages there's there's so many interesting textures on this album so like in the drumming for a lot of the more mellow passages we get really sinister bongo playing. Yeah. I'd yeah, say yeah. the most sinister bongo playing I've ever heard. But, but it really adds... It works like, really nicely. Just, yeah, just that little extra thing which adds to the texture of the moment and, you know, those vocal effects do that as well. Mm. Uh, a reason this album sounds like such a change from their previous stuff as well is because, um, because of uh, aforementioned Lopez's health issues. Also, Peter... Um, who was always Michael's writing partner, and Michael's only always wanted to push him as, like, really mm. lead guitarist of the band, was stepping more and more away from the writing and losing confidence in, in it. Mm. He lasted in the band a lot longer, like, I think about a year or two more, but didn't make it to the next album. He quit after this one. On this album, he barely contributed. I think he wrote one solo. He wrote, like, no yeah. riffs. Yeah. So this is the first album where Mike's really taken the lead. Like, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, the main other contributor writing-wise is Peer Weirberg. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's so you've got this quite different thing because if you look at, say, Blackwater Park, Peter was so much more involved in the creative process. Mm. Also, mm. I have no idea what the one solo he wrote is. Yeah. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't work it out. But um, yeah, those two, I can't. You can't really tell which one's doing no, the solo. There's such a sort of OPEF identity because they've been together for so long. It's, mm. yeah. yeah, well, they ba- yeah, basically learn to play together. Mm. Mm. And yeah, like, so it, it's just like this album has this brilliant thing for me being like it's something that can never happen again the, yeah. because the lineup fizzled out they opened completely changed direction it's just a perfect point in time this culmination of a lot of factors that made a really different and unique sounding album possibly not the pinnacle of their career I'd find it very hard to choose from those seven yeah yeah there's such and there's lots of differences between all those albums and this one's got its fair share of like things which make it quite different as well but it's worth going. It's worth going back and listening to all of Opeth, pretty much. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, like these albums and this one, it's huge, huge highlight. Yeah, definitely. And you've, you've got so many weird variations in style. Like Harlequin Forest is a death metal track that descends into folk in the middle. Yeah, yeah. But then comes out to a Deliverance <laughs> style. Like so, the end of Deliverance, um, the probably most famous song is this cool 
weird riff that repeats yeah, for ages. Sli- yeah, slightly odd time signature where it sort of draws attention to itself. And yeah, Harlequin Forest has got that in it, and it's really good. And weirdly, our own, having only done that one album before, managed to recapture the same idea and do yeah. quite a good version of it. Yeah, yeah, without feeling like it's just taking that idea and milking it. Yeah, yeah. There's just some really interesting stuff going on here. Other thing I want to mention, so we mentioned Porcupine Tree had a very good album mm. this year, Deadwing. There's a great overlap. So Steve Wilson's gone from Opeth, but to make up for that, Michael Ackerfeld comes over to Porcupine Tree. <laughs> does a load of backing vocals on Deadwing. Like, mm. listen to a track arriving somewhere but not here. He lends a great texture to that vocally. But he also lends a solo to it. And as cool plog rock overlap, that solo is also in Hours of Wealth. I don't know if it's the same, I don't know if it's the same take of it, but exactly same the solo. same piece of lead guitar as in both songs. Oh, that's really cool, yeah. Which is, yeah, just such a, <laughs> such a dumb bit of trivia, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is just such a good album, and, you know, Metal Hammer recognised that at the time as well. This was a huge, huge thing. It's hard to overstate how much I love this one. Yeah, yeah, completely. So, um, yeah, basically that brings us to a close on our summary of why 2005 was great. Please hit us up on like Facebook or Twitter or email us even. Let us know what you love from this year. Like, or if there's other years like this that mm, I, mm. I I noticed there's a lot around this time period that are really good. So there's another great year in metal history you'd like us to have an attempt at covering. Like yeah, more yeah, modern definitely. would be really interesting. I think 2014 was great, but I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah um, it's definitely <laughs> worth having a look back. Yeah, so, oh, and, and here's a, let us know what we missed. There's got to be hundreds of brilliant albums we didn't even touch on there. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. so much stuff that was coming out at this point in time, because, say, explosion of the internet. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, metal was going well and truly global. So, yeah, let us know what we've missed. So, yeah, contest us, Phil's Breakfast Metal at Facebook.com, uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal at Gmail. Uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal with no apostrophe that's no apostrophe in any of them uh, Twitter yeah and and please uh, like rate and review us on iTunes like it would be great to get a few more on there we've we've had one one come up so thanks yeah, a lot for that really really nice yeah, yeah. <laughs> very very kind words but yeah, yeah if, if you could make two minutes and you listen to us on, on, on iTunes please please put a review up there yeah and um, well soon we're going to be coming to the 2017 roundup yes where Keep uh, the whole explosion of the internet thing. Keep finding more and more albums. I think, <laughs> oh, this is really interesting. Should this be on the list? Oh, I don't have time to listen to all of these. But um, yeah, uh, we should be coming to that soon. So I mean, if there's anything you think is really awesome that should definitely be on the list, let us know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Certainly, certainly give it a listen. Yeah, we'll try to. We've only got about a week and a half to fit this in. But <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll, we'll do our best. Um, yeah, so not much choice of what song to leave you with because most of them are well over 10 minutes yep. but to give you a bit of a flavour of the album we thought we'd play out with Beneath the Mire and I've also spotted in my notes uh, that I've written Morning Rise is better than Watershed Fight Me so I'll leave you <laughs> on that thought <laughs>